0: Where you are, we are with you, and we're thankful for this technology, as Pastor Sean was was mentioning, how blessed it is to have it, especially for a time like this. I know the last couple of services that we've uh, live-streamed, we've been really focusing our attention on bringing you hope and encouragement uh, through these times. but Tonight, I, I want to continue that, but uh, I want to get back to what we are so used to doing. And that is teaching the Word of God, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and book by book. Precept upon precept, and every word being so important that God has given us to learn, to grow in, and to share. Tonight, I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And as you're doing that, uh, let me just mention that as we look at the landscape of what is happening because of this COVID-19, coronavirus, pandemic pandemic, that has really uh, affected our country, if not the world, of course, but affected our country in in so many different ways. I had a thought today as I was thinking about this, and that was that uh, this is truly a global event. And I don't mean that in a good sense. A global event in that we see from Scripture the warnings that are given to us. Of a time in the end when there is going to be this tremendous push for a new world order. Something of this nature, this coronavirus that has put a stop to so many things. The arts and sports and uh, all different kinds of things that uh, we were so used to doing just took for granted. Now, in a good sense, that has awakened the church. In a good sense, that has put us back into a, uh, a refining. God is refining his church. That's the good thing. And hopefully we are moving toward a, a greater time that we ourselves individually can spend with the Lord. And not just with the Lord. Not just learning of the Lord. Not just growing. Not just praying. But actually being active. When we can be. And within the realm of what we are having to consider as far as the ordinances and all. And the regulations and all that have been put upon us both. Or, or actually locally as well as uh, uh, statewide and and. and uh, in the federal uh, level as well. But it's just coming back to that, that, that global event. And uh, that means that we need to be much more aware. We need to be sharper when it comes to what Jesus taught about the end time, what he taught about last things, what he taught prophetically. And we're going to touch upon that. That's one reason I've, I've chosen to start here in coming back to a verse-by-verse uh, context. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 states, Paul and Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is In God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I thought about this question, a question that could be asked. Why, why after intensely studying the, the book of Colossians, which, of course, we did on Saturday night and Sunday morning, why are we now going to study the letters of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. And aside from the fact that it's really the next book following Colossians, which is not the main reason, it is a letter that can offer some understanding to the need for the body of of Christ to, to get back to the study of prophecy and the study of last things. Something that is sorely lacking in too many churches today that would rather pander to the more liberal, progressive, worldly elements that are trying to overtake denominations and movements within the visible church. Suffice it to say that through much prayer and study, we are simply where the Lord wants to speak to us about two precious things, precious to my heart and to his to encourage the church of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and to establish the church in the word of God and their hearts to holy living through the truths of the word while awaiting the Lord's coming for the church. In other words, in these two short but profound letters, Paul would balance the prophetic with the practical. The doctrine of Christ's return is to be more than academic. It is to be dynamic in and through our lives and in the service of every believer in the church. In his teaching of the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, for many years the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, warned against abstract doctrine that didn't have an effect on a believer's life he made this comment in his teaching of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and i quote my chief interest in the doctrine of the second coming of christ is what it does for you now and if you don't know 1 john 3 verse 3 i'm not interested in your the- in your theory of prophecy for 1 john 3 verse 3 says and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And so, Barnhouse stressed the need for personal holiness, as well as doctrinal orthodoxy, especially in the area of Christ's return. Now, the best background to begin a study in First and Second Thessalonians would, would be to read Acts chapter 17. I will read a good portion of it in verses 1 through 15. Acts 17 1 says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. That's three weeks opening and alleging that must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few, which means a lot of the chief women believed. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. These that have turned the world upside down. Is that something that the church, the Christian church, the Christian assembly of believers in Jesus Christ turned the world upside down in the time of the Apostle Paul? How we need to turn this world right side up. As we see the day of Christ approaching. It goes on to say in verse 7. Whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king. One Jesus. That would mean that they would probably accuse Paul. And those who would follow him. As traitorous. As committing treason. Against Caesar. Caesar. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, And searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. This is where we get that phrase of being a Berean. A Berean who was one who received the word with readiness of mind. But searched the scriptures daily. To see that even if the apostle Paul said something that it would be so. Verse 12. Therefore many of them believed. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens... And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus to come to him with all speed, they departed. So we see somewhat of the background, some of the the groundwork that needed to be done in this city of Thessalonica. Paul goes in and of course as always he began his work in the synagogue. But still had the desire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Gentile. Now, it was in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey with Silas, which took place between 49 and 52 AD, that Paul arrived in Thessalonica. And this letter is probably the earliest of Paul's letters, written around 52 AD from Corinth, and more than likely the earliest of the books of the New Testament. It was written not long after Paul departed from Thessalonica. Now, this letter was written to a church that was about a year old to encourage and to establish it in basic scriptural truths, to encourage them to holy living, and to instruct them concerning the Lord Jesus Christ coming for his own, coming for the church. Now, you see the importance, if you will, for just a moment, think, the importance of knowing basic scriptural truths to be encouraged in living holy unto the Lord, and remembering that the Lord was one who was going to come at any moment. This is so, uh, such a necessity for us today to know that this is, uh, this is where we are. We're at the very cusp of the last days, of the coming of Jesus Christ. So when we get back to this letter... The, the, the letter to the Thessalonians was, was written to correct some misconceptions that had arisen within the church concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. Most, if not all, of Paul's letters began with a greeting, which was standard in letters of the time. So we go back to verse 1 for just a moment. And it says there, Paul and Silvanus and, and Timothe- or Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you just some quick observations. The author of the letter, of course, is Paul, the first name mentioned, who was accompanied by Silas and Timothy. The phrase, unto the church of the Thessalonians, implies strongly that the message was to be given to the called-out assembly, to the church which must be seen as an organism, something that has life, and not simply an organization. That's, again, something that all believers need to understand about the church. The church is not a building. The church is not some conglomeration. The church is an organism made up of believers in Jesus Christ. That is why we are the called out assembly. And what that means is this: that the church does not teach. The church is taught. In other words, beware of those who say, "You know, the church teaches this or or the church teaches that." We have some churches That emphasize to their people that it's the church that says what to do. The church that says what not to do. The church that says you need to live life this way or that way. But scripture is clear. That the Holy Spirit does the teaching. And the Holy Spirit does the teaching according to the word of God. Secondly, notice that Paul says unto the church of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what better place for a church to be? The church needs to be in God and in Christ. Never outside of God, never outside of Christ. And consider this, that our home, where we live, is a person. Our home is in Christ. Add to this the classic greeting of Paul to most of the churches, He said, grace be unto you. He uses the word charis, undeserved favor. And then he says peace, which is the Greek word eirene, which is also translated from the Hebrew shalom. The wholeness, the completeness of God's blessings. This is what he desires for this church. Grace, undeserved favor, and peace. Then he says in verses 2 and 3, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. I'd have you put a bookmark right here on verse 3 and remember those three things that Paul remembers himself. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, and labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus, in the sight of God and our Father. Paul's love for the church was reflected in his prayer life. And he was certainly concerned for the spiritual welfare of such a young church. We know from Acts 17 that Paul had been in Thessalonica three Sabbaths, indicating at least three weeks of time teaching and reasoning with them from the Hebrew scriptures that Messiah had indeed come. Consider, if you go back to Acts 17, verses 2 and 3 for just a moment, what we read earlier, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with him out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, Messiah. Messiah is who the Jewish people are waiting for. They were waiting for him then. They're waiting for him today. Now most Jewish people don't believe that Messiah is that their Messiah is Jesus. Uh, they're going. They're in for a rude awakening. He's the only one that fits the bill. He's the only one that fits the circumstances. He's the only one that fits everything about Messiah. So Paul was very clear in preaching him, Jesus, as the Messiah. Now, going back to that understanding of him teaching for three weeks or three Sabbaths, that doesn't mean that they only stayed three weeks in Thessalonica. As was Paul's manner, he carried on the work with a Jewish emphasis for three weeks and then turned to Gentiles and minister to them some weeks after that. Now, we know this for a few reasons. First, the Philippian church sent money to Paul at at least twice during his visit. We know in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that Paul writes, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, But ye only, for even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. And we know from the scriptures that Paul also supported himself by manual labor. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, for ye remember, brethren, our labor." And travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preach unto you the gospel of God. I wonder why we don't hear a lot of preaching about this particular verse of scripture from those who would pressure so many people in the church today to give their tithe and to continue to pressure it, uh, you know, to the point of even uh, having the people burdened by it people aren't to be burdened by this you know paul said in first thessalonians that we are to be uh, cheerful givers we're to give with from the heart not give under pressure many of us who began in the ministry many many years ago we labored uh, in in tent making as it were uh, paul was a tent maker but w- you know we, we had our own ways of, of, of Having a a daily uh, salary to pay for the needs that we had in our own homes. But never pressured, never pressured the people into giving. Paul's a good example of that. Paul needs to be followed in that more and more. And I know especially right now when there are so many things happening where people aren't working. Uh, Drive around the city before they start checking on you while you're driving around the city. Check around the city today. You go to, you pass by a mall, there's hardly a car out there. Even the roads themselves. Uh, This is what we have to abide by right now try to stem the flow of this virus. The fact of the matter is though, people aren't working and if you don't work, you're not getting paid. We understand that. We're not pressuring anyone to, you know, give. You know, giving will take its course when when the time comes. The Lord is going to provide. He'll provide for us, provide for you. We need to trust him in those things. So what was it that that Paul remembered of this church? He said in verse 3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. In three weeks or so, this young infant church had become well-grounded in the word of God and in the doctrines given to the church. In three weeks, give or take a little bit. This was evidence of the great doctrine of salvation about which Paul speaks of in verses uh, well, verses 4 and 5, but verse 4 specifically. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. That would be peace. In power and in peace. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Their response to the preaching of the gospel in their midst constituted undeniable proof of their salvation so let's always remember that salvation begins with God in fact salvation begins and ends with God salvation begins and ends with Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith the beginning and the end the starting line and the finish line of our faith salvation begins with God Again, this is something that Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Salvation begins always with God. You see, the response of his converts was a supernatural work of God. It wasn't a natural response to a clearly delivered sermon. It was a supernatural work of God, God working in the hearts of the people. Many times before they would begin to hear the gospel. You can look at your own testimony, look at your own self and say, you know that God was preparing you. You can look back in retrospect and see God preparing you for the hearing of the gospel. There were, many, there were many times we would hear the gospel and we didn't respond to it, we didn't like it, we didn't want to hear it. And so we would just kind of, eh, you know, brush it off. I don't know that we've ever thought that some of those times God was already softening the heart. God was already chiseling away at the rock, stony heart that we had. It was a supernatural work. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. It brings to mind the very fact that if he's working in those ways where we cannot see, even when we ourselves are moved by the Spirit to say that Jesus is Lord, to repent of our sins, and just to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it always comes back to the fact, that that was because of what Christ had done and what God had done in preparing us and working his work in us. So when Paul preached and taught them, he didn't just share human opinion and philosophy 101 with them. Instead, his message was marked by the power of God. His message was marked by the power of God, and our message as we share the gospel or declare the gospel or proclaim the gospel, our message must always be marked by the power of God. Because I'll tell you this, I haven't saved anyone. None of us have saved anyone. Jesus saves. God has saved through his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Where are we in all of that? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's where we are. But it begins and ends with God. It was the Holy Spirit that brought it home to their hearts. And brought it home to our hearts with deep conviction. As Jesus taught in John 16 verse 8. that when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. That's the work of God. That's the work of the whole Godhead. That's the work of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is important to point out that the message was indeed preached through Paul's lips, yes, but the manner in which it was given was in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. And that's what people need When when, when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, they need to recognize that they've heard the gospel, whether it is through, through a preacher or a pastor, they hear the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Paul said in Romans chapter 10. And then the power of the Holy Spirit behind the word of God. But there's much assurance in it. There's much peace. If we are not at peace, if we are asking the question, I don't know if I'm really saved or not, you'd have to come to conviction that you're not saved. Because you will have peace. Because it is a powerful work of God through Christ, through the work of Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us the understanding that we who have been saved have been saved. Because of what Christ has done and how he he shed his blood to forgive us of our sins. To cleanse us from from all unrighteousness. And we begin afresh and anew as a new man, a new person in Christ. With a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit that's alive and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so even though Paul was not with with the other apostles when when the Lord spoke to them these words, uh, that being what he said in John 16 verse 8, he nonetheless received the same message and he received the same anointing. When you read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit... For the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And even though though Paul wasn't there, he received the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. And he became a witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of of the earth. Paul's message was marked by his own certainty and his own assurance that this very same message would change their lives as it had radically changed his. And so the people received the gospel and the word of God, and they received it eagerly. And they would also be eager followers of Paul and of the Lord. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord. <laughs> I'm glad he put that in there. You became, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Stop and think, before we go on, just stop and think of that, in that, in that verse, what, what Paul is saying. Having received the word in much affliction, there was a lot of suffering. That was going on. We read a little bit about it in Acts 17. Suffering and persecution because of those that came against the gospel and those that came against the word of God. Yet consider, if you will, that picture of receiving the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. With joy. You know, we would almost, almost consider that really a paradox, you know. Affliction and joy Together. And yet, in much affliction today, you know, we pray and ask God to to open up hearts of people who need to know Jesus Christ today because they've been suffering much affliction because of fear. Hearts failing them because of this fear that's going on with COVID 19. They received the word. They received it with joy of the Holy Ghost. And notice in verse 7, so that they were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Most other translations would use the word example here for examples. But uh, I'll mention something about the word in sample. It, even though it is an archaic word, it's an important word for us to understand. I'll get to it in in just a moment. But the implication, of course, is that they stop following other things to follow after Paul and after the Lord. They stop following other things. That's really an important concept to understand, an important principle for us as believers to understand. Because Jesus wants all of us he doesn't want just part of us. You know, there are too many professing believers who say that they have one foot in heaven in, in, in and one foot on the earth. Or one, one foot serving the Lord and one foot wanting the things of the earth. Wanting to follow the things of the, of the world but they stopped following other things. And it's important that we have that singular view of where we are going and the singular view of who we follow. Consequently, in following Paul, they were indeed following the Lord because they could see in his life the way to go. To the Philippian church, Paul said, Philippians 3.17, Brethren, Be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an ensample. There's that word again, an ensample. That word ensample, by the way, is a pattern or model for imitation. It is something that is to be imitated. It is something that is to be seen in the one that has taken the example that is given. Or the model that is given. Or the pattern that is given. And it's interesting that between the two words. Example and an end sample. That end sample only refers to a person's characteristic and behavior. And never applies to an inanimate object. It always applies to the character of a person. And so there's a model. There's an example. There is a pattern for imitation. That's why that word is a very powerful word here. Because it isn't just an example that you can choose to follow or not. It is an in-sample. And consider the two words, X and N. X is out. N is in. In is something that is to be in you. A sample that is in you that you are to follow. Keep that in mind when you consider that word in the King James Bible. And don't see it in any other Bible. The word of God came to them. In much adversity. There in Thessalonica. And so they received it in much affliction. Being pressed like grapes or olives. Being squeezed by the press. That is how real their suffering was. Before coming to Thessalonica. Paul and Silas had been beaten up. They've been thrown into prison for their faith. That young church in Thessalonica, that young church there saw the marks on their bodies, the marks on Paul and Silas' bodies for their faith in Christ. They saw the marks. Their marks were real. But so much more, their faith was real. Folks, mere human joy will die under intense pressure. But the joy of the Holy Spirit will only grow through the trial. Joy of the Holy Spirit will only grow. You know, that, that's one reason why we, we oftentimes comment about that great statement in, in the book of uh, Nehemiah, which I'm, I'm just going to go to here very quickly. When after the people had built the walls of the city of Jerusalem after coming back from exile, Nehemiah would say in verse 10 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, this won't be a there, so you can look it up, but it says, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the to our Lord. Neither be ye sorry. Don't be sorrowful, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we know about all that opposition that they were facing there in, in Jerusalem when the walls were being built in those fifty one days. We know of that opposition. It was constant. There's, a, there's actually really Constant opposition against the true church of Jesus Christ today. Even from within what we call the body of Christ. Even from within what we would call Christendom, as it were. People that don't want to hear the the full truth of the gospel. The full counsel of God, as Paul mentions it in, in, in Acts chapter 17. The full counsel of God has never stopped being important to the church. Only now what is important is not what is important to God in many cases. You know, all these people that oppose you know, the, the doctrines of, 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 and, and the prophecies of, of Scripture today doctors that they don't want to deal with like some people don't want to deal with the issue of hell they say well there really isn't a hell well Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven or they don't really want to preach against sin you know well that's you know that's negative no sin is what got us in the problems that we're having in the first place Yeah, some churches that want to kind of Get together with people uh, of different faiths. uh, They'll have Muslims come. What's sad is this Chrislam issue of people coming, you know, uh, Muslims coming into churches and being allowed to pray in their language. And so what a beautiful language. And they're over here, you know, cursing believers and cursing Christ. But nobody understands their language. Or they want to have some fellowship with with Buddhists and say, well, you know, we, we all pray, and Buddhists pray, so obviously we have some things in common. We have nothing in common with them. They don't even believe in God. They believe in becoming God. They want to have some understanding of, you know, well, let's bring a Hindu in, and they can tell us all about their kundalini spirit and their yoga, and we can practice yoga with them. That's, that's, a, that's a demonic spirit. What are we doing? What do we do when we see a person who has suffered the marks of, of affliction for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the Thessalonians saw those marks on Paul and on Silas. So, in only a short time, this young baby church became examples, ensamples, and encouragers of other believers. And word spread. Word spread throughout Macedonia, which is in northern Greece. Word spread to Achaia, which is in southern Greece. May we do no less. May we be examples to others of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. No matter the cost. No matter what the cost would be. And again, this this time in which we're living, what it's done for us. If we take good stock in what is going on, and surrender daily our hearts and our lives and our walk and our, and our being to, to God every day. And say to him, Lord, if you would just even give us one person that is suffering fear, with fear and, 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 and uncertainty because of what's going on. To tell them the answer is only in Jesus Christ. Give me that opportunity, Lord, and then we could say, "But give me one person every day, one person a day." I remember that that was the prayer of Chuck Smith's father. Chuck Smith, the founder, founding pastor of Calvary Chapel, the Calvary Chapel movement, he talked about his father who every day prayed to at least speak to one person about Jesus Christ. And he led many people to the Lord that way. We need to be examples to others of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We're not called to show off to our brothers and sisters. We're called to love them. We're called to encourage them because many of them during this time need our encouragement. We're not to compete with them. We are to be examples of faith, trust, and be that not only to our brothers and sisters, but be that to those who need Jesus. Lastly, and this is what ties everything in this chapter together, the results. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God is spread abroad. So that we need not speak anything. Or we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So as we've said before, salvation begins with God, and salvation involves God's love, brethren beloved, verse 4. Salvation involves faith. Salvation involves the triune God. And salvation certainly changes lives. Paul was making it very clear how he knew that these new believers in Jesus Christ were elected, how they were chosen, how they were set apart by God. So what I want you to do is to connect and compare verse 3, which I mentioned to you earlier to kind of keep a mark on that verse. Connect and compare verse 3 With verses 9 and 10. And notice it this way. Where Paul said, I remember your work of faith. Here in verse 9 he says, you turned to God from idols. That was a work of faith. I remember your labor of love. Well, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And I remember your patience of hope which was to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. You know the idols of this life must go. And we must turn to Jesus. The idols of this life must go. And it doesn't necessarily mean, especially today, little idols carved out of stone or wood or whatever. We make a lot of things idols. Idols that we care for more than we care about a relationship with the true God. We ought to remember Isaiah 42 verse 8 that says I am the Lord that is, his, is my name and my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. When things become so much more important than the one who created us and made us we're in deep trouble because we are not to give any praise to any graven image, anything that would stand in the place of the God who created us. We need to remember that we serve a living God, a living God. How many people are actively active in activities and going nowhere with God? There's all kinds of activities. Even in churches, there's all kinds of activities. Not many today, but certainly there has been. But how many people are actively active in activities and yet going nowhere with the one true and living God? I love what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, conceited, or arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, you know the worship of idols at one time was uh, was done because they said, well, you know, if we if we if we sacrifice to this particular idol, you know, a, a fertility idol or or a fertility god, or or or, or we worship a, a god of of you know of, uh, of uh, plenty and uh, you know they'll provide the, the rain that we need and all. Uh, they were sorely missing the boat because the living God, the one true and living God will give all things to enjoy. In fact, when you think about it, even the scripture refers to the fact that it rains upon the righteous and the just as well as the wicked. It rains on the saved and the unsaved. And when things like a virus, like COVID 19, happen, it rains on believers and unbelievers. Yet, Paul says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, nor trusted in certain riches, but in the living God. That's who we trust in. who who giveth richly all things to enjoy. And Paul would want us to wait eagerly for the Lord's return, in particular for Messiah's return. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Holy living, waiting for the Lord Jesus, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And so I close with this thought, that as this church was, the church of Thessalonica, As this church was, then let us be an encouragement, because they were an encouragement. As this church was, let us be an example, as they were examples. As the church in Thessalonica was, in being enthusiastic about the Lord and about the things of God, we need to be enthusiastic about those things today. And lastly, as this church was in being expectant for the coming of the Messiah, so must we, as the church of Jesus Christ, in these last days, in the latter days, in the latter times, when Jesus could come at any moment, we need to be expectant. We need to be waiting and looking and lifting Lifting up our heads. Looking up. Because Jesus can come at any moment. And so our first chapter of Thessalonians.